Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Client we had early on in my sales career. And his account started with like two or three million and it shot up to like 20 million in like six or nine months. And he was generating a ton of revenue, a ton of commissions to interactive brokers. So I called to find out like, hey, how can we help service you to keep you happy? Because you're generating so much revenue to us and you're doing so well. And he's explaining his strategy and he's like buying. Hey, how's it going, Sean? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, round two. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, about a year, right? How how long? When was that first interview? Like a year and a half ago, maybe, or a year ago? It was a while back, right? Yeah, I think it was around when I was in Brazil, which I think was, I think, a year ago exactly to this date. Mm. Maybe a year and a couple months ago, but um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, the markets have changed since then. Yes. So. Yes. Very much <laughs> so. Things. Yeah. Well, uh, I I want to give people an intro. So I think the kind of the internet uh, kind of knows you from this headline, which is at least the ones that really work for us, which is you <laughs> took your uh, investment IRA from two thousand seven hundred to like twenty nine million. I think that was kind of the headline back then, which made that was the headline. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Obviously, we don't have to go into the details of that, but um, that's partly also like a lot of your bet on Tesla, right? That was kind of the initial thing that you really bet on. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Like, or what was it like, and what is it like to have such a disproportionate amount uh, of your net worth in in one stock? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, another job for me. You know, I I think we uh, touched on a little bit uh, last time, but yeah, Tesla. You know, in addition to my day job, which you know was working in sales in the financial industry, and just so you got everyone knows on this in this chat that none of this is investment advice. This is all just my own experience and opinions. I'm not a registered investment advisor. Please don't take anything we talk about as investment advice. I've, learned to make make sure we add disclosures when we talk in my previous career. So yeah, I was working in financial sales for uh, interactive brokers doing quite well, you know, professionally and career wise. And I had this, you know, IRA account that I um, uh, had rolled over from a previous job from a 401k into like $2,500 or something like that. 20, I guess it was $2,700 at one point. And uh I started, I discovered Tesla at the same time in like 2010, you know, 2011 when Tesla was like a 2 billion market cap company, you know? Um, and so, yeah. yeah, it was before the Model S was, uh, you know, there was just, the reason I discovered it also was um, they, they had like a, they were doing a, a show, a showing of the Model S prototype uh, at various like high-end department stores around the country, I guess, and try to buzz up investment or just buzz around their new product offering they're planning to unveil. And uh, a friend of mine and I went to go visit it and it looked amazing. I just fell in love with it first sight. And um, so I just fell in love with Tesla and I thought, you know, um, this 
IRA account. I'm going to just do what I can to max it out on Tesla. <laughs> you know, And sure enough, uh, you know, 10 years later, it's, you know, 30 million plus, you know, and, but it, it's since been diversified across a few other things. Um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I, I did quite well with a lot of Tesla option, not just the stock. You got to really use call options in there at the right mm. time. Yeah. And did you go, was it at one point, like over 80%? Of your whole portfolio yeah i mean my personal account yeah my ira account and my personal account both were heavily invested my ira was like that ira account was all pretty much you know tesla for the most part mm-hmm. um and my personal saving my personal investment account which wasn't my 401k at my job or my stock incentive plan at my job that was like the safe retirement stuff for when i'm 60 or whatever and i can retire with that but my personal like investment account that was taxable um, I also invested very heavily in Tesla and Tesla became, you know, literally, uh, 95% of my net worth or more, oh you know, uh, you know, recently, um, I diversified a bit out of it still like, I don't know, probably between like 50 to 80% of my net worth given on what day of the market it is, <laughs> you know, so it's still a high percentage of my net worth. And I like it like that because I really believe in it and I really study it. And it's been another job for me. I've been studying it thousands of hours over the last 10 years. You know, I remember before Twitter, I was on Twitter since 2010 or 2011, but you couldn't find anything about Tesla on Twitter back then. You know, like I'd search the Tesla ticker, there'd be nothing, you know, there'd be no news articles. Once a month, there'd be like a Motley Fool article about it or something or Seeking Alpha article. And that's back then you would have, you know, arguments with people instead of on Twitter, it'd be on the Seeking Alpha articles, you know, the comment sections, they'd be like notoriously long, hundreds of comments on some bearish article of why you should short Tesla. And it'd be like a dozen people like me that are bullish Tesla debating with the Tesla bears on there, like ridiculous. Nothing's thing. changed, I feel. It's still the Nothing's same news articles. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the competition is, is coming. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Everything is the same. Elon Musk is not buying Twitter. He's distracted. It's just. Yeah, yeah. And I spent many hours on the, there was a, there's this enthusiast board called Tesla Motors Club uh, forums. And then Tesla actually had their own little um, uh, online forum for a while too. Uh, And it did, there was some good information in there from time to time, but the the third party Tesla Motors Club forum um, board became like the main meeting point for Tesla enthusiasts online for, for years. And I spent hours and hours a day looking through all the posts, especially on the investment side, just, really studying it up for, for years there to get com- confidence in it. This is the, so, this is like such an interesting thing that, uh, that I find about your story and, and, and some of the other people around, especially like the Tesla fanatics, where it's actually <laughs> normal to see people that have 80 to 85% of their portfolio in this one stock. And you don't really see that in other mm. communities. And when I first kind of learn about investing in my early 20s and I didn't really know anything about it. The number one advice is like, just invest in the S&P 500, that's gonna beat the market. And then as I started to learn a little bit more, read about like Charlie Munger, who's famous for quoting, like any idiot can diversify their portfolio. And I meet people like yourself that have just had crazy returns. Uh, Another guy that I follow, Chicken Genius Singapore, I think Ken, he's got 85% of his portfolio. Yeah, he just tweeted out like last week that, this is his portfolio. Uh, so mm-hmm. what, what, what are your thoughts on diversification as a whole? And yeah. are you for it? Are you not for it? I'm for it. You know, I think most people should be diversified in an ETF or, you know, broad-based index ETF. I think that's way better 
than just having cash sitting in an account. It's also way better, in my opinion, than like a mutual fund or an actively managed mutual fund in general for the long term. You know, mutual funds are products that have lots of fees within them, and then they have fees within the fees. It's like kind of sneaky. Um, whereas an ETF is an electronic traded fund or an exchange traded fund, but it's traded electronically over the exchanges as well, and it's just transparent and liquid. And there's, you know, usually much lower fees um, and transparency in the within the ETF, and it's passive, meaning like it's just a basket of stocks that represent an index or a theme, and there's no one making decisions on like, oh, I like this stock or that stock because I like the CEO better or something. There's no one making those types of active decisions. It's just a basket, and you buy into that basket, and you just see how that basket of stocks performs over time, and so that's like a good diversification play. The active managed funds, which are often mutual funds, then you have like a portfolio manager running it who's like actively selecting one stock over another because they like what the CEO said on the earnings call versus what the CEO said on that earnings call. And uh, you pay for that extra discretion by the portfolio manager to, to be active there. And some people say that's good, but I personally am not a, a fan of that over the long run. Um, you know, just from my previous job working in sales, uh, in finance, you know, I saw lots of active traders, actively man- like portfolio managers from previous jobs, starting their own fund and whatnot. And, you know, not many of them beat the market or beat the passive funds over the long, long run. They usually don't perform as well. Yeah, with the, with the fees on top as well, like are there historical data points around whether an average mutual fund does beat just investing in an ETF, like an S&P 500? Yeah, there's lots of studies on this uh, and I'm sure people can Google it. I don't know that offhand, but it's I'm, I'm pretty sure like if you just invest in the S&P 500 or especially the NASDAQ, you know, I guess the tickers for those ETFs are SPY and QQQ. So if you were just investing in those ETFs for the, those, those indices over the last like 10 or 20 years, you'd like beat almost any manager, any actively traded manager and trading manager over that time period. You know, maybe like Warren, there's a few outliers like Warren Buffett or something, or some people, um, you know, that have drunken Miller or something like that. There's a few people that, you know, but it's arguable whether the, you know, you can find more of those people and, and the people that you think are those people, those people might be the people that just flip the coin head six times in a row, very luckily. And then the seventh time their tail, you know, they regress to the mean, you know, so it's, um, it's, it's tricky. Um, but I think, yeah, the, 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 what I tell friends and family is if they have to ask what stock I should invest in, that's the wrong question. You know, like they should just be buying an ETF, you know, mm. Only invest like whenever I've personally invested in a stock that I thought other smart people were talking about, and I didn't really know it myself. It's never done. It's it's often done very poorly. You know, it's only when I discover a company myself that I think is really important, and I study the investment you know opportunity with buying the stock, and I I start believing in it, and I get conviction myself. That's the times I've done well. The few times I've done well, you know, like early in my career, I discovered XM satellite radio and that technology at like a Best Buy with my new car, one of my first cars in like the year 2000 or maybe it was the year 2002 or something. But then I bought the stock at like $3. I didn't know much about investing in stocks. I just knew this was a cool new technology. I thought it'd be a trend. And sure enough, it went to like 30 bucks within a few years. And I was Mm, like, wow, that was awesome. So I feel like if you discover some kind of new technology or trend, that you think is going to be a big part of the future, then maybe look at investing in the stock and that if you believe in it, you know, but also, you know, you have to understand lots of other nuts and bolts about investing, like what a market cap is and, 
you know, price PE earnings ratios or how much, what their balance sheet is. There's lots of facets within investing. So it's, it's tricky. Yeah. It seems like for, for people that are actually giving out advice, which is going to be reaching more people like media outlets or uh, influencers, they're reaching so many people that the best advice really is to give them the advice of diversifying as much as they can, because there is such a rare opportunity to find such a generation company like Tesla that you, it's not evergreen, right? It's just like, it's so hard to say that unless you have a specific stock that you want to invest into yes. to, to say that you should have 80% of your portfolio, that's a really tough one. And one thing that yeah. I struggle with, and I don't know what your thoughts are with this, as, as I'm sure you have to train yourself is like avoiding confirmation bias because you have such a high percentage of your net worth in one stock. Oh, I struggle with that. Yeah. It's a tough one, right? Cause then also you're going to watch videos on YouTube. The YouTube video is now going to share with you more information <laughs> around people that are, have positive things to say about Tesla, let's say yeah. other stock. And you're just going, you're feeding the algorithm. So even if you're not consciously trying to have confirmation bias, you're, yeah. you're, you're fighting against a trillion dollar algorithm that is so tricky to go against. So how do you actively avoid confirmation bias when there's so much on the line for you? Yeah. Yeah. So two things there. The first thing is, you know, Tesla became, you know, up to 95% plus of my overall net worth, but it didn't start out that way. It started out as like, you know, maybe 10% of my net worth of, you know, or 20% of my net worth because I was using my discretionary kind of trading account to invest a lot of money into it or whatever. And then it grew to become such a huge disproportionate amount of my net worth, but the rest of my net worth, which I could rely on to retire at the age of 60, if I had to, or whatever, if Tesla went to zero, you know, was still there. So, you know, sometimes people say, oh, like investment advisors will classically train investment advisors might be like, well, you know, you'll see this in rebalancings of ETFs, like ARK Investment, is a famous, you know, active managed ETF, but they have, you know, they have rules where they can't be more than 10%. When Tesla gets to a certain level, they sell some of Tesla. So that's not more than 10% of their portfolio. And I'm like kind of anti that. I feel like if you have a generational company on your hands that like an Apple or a Tesla or an Amazon, you get in somewhat early. Why, why would I want to sell it when it's like in the midst of a historic run up, you know, like just because it became more than 10% of my net worth, and I know I, I should be diversifying. Doesn't mean I should sell it from 15% back down to 10%. And every time it gets to 15%, sell it back to 10%. I'd missed out on so much upside in that case, you know? So sometimes diversification gets taken too far in that respect, in my in my opinion. You know, like if, if you think you have like an Apple or a Tesla or something, and it's already become more than a certain rule you set for yourself for diversification. But if the rest of your portfolio is still doing well, then why would you need to sell that thing? That's your biggest breadwinner, you know, like let it run, let the winners run is like a saying people say. And, um, but the main part of your question was the confirmation bias, right? Like, how do you know um, I'm not in confirmation bias? And the truth is I'll, I'll probably never know. I, I do have some confirmation. I'm sure I have some confirmation bias with Tesla, especially, or I had with Bitcoin early on, I invested in Bitcoin early on and um, you know, and, and I try to view things from multiple perspectives. Like with Tesla, I love to study the arguments against Tesla. Like as much as it pains me to hear it, like even in politics, you know, I might be leaning one direction in politics, but I want to hear the other side, even though it might be painful to hear like 
you know, what woke people are saying, you know, I'm trying to empathize and trying to understand like where they're coming from. What, what is, you know, what, what are they trying to get across? Why, if I was in their shoes, how could I be thinking that's the right thing? And when I can understand like a Tesla bear and why they think it's overvalued versus where I am, you know, I feel like the more shoes I can put myself in, the better I am at empathizing with the different views, the more it eradicates confirmation bias. You know, it might make me bring me towards the center of where I think things are, you know, it, it gets yeah. to a more accurate story in my head of what I think would play out, if that makes sense. There's a great quote by Charlie Munger who says that you're not entitled to have an opinion unless you can argue the other side better than the other side. Yes. Yeah, that's a good quote. Yeah. Yeah. And so with Tesla, the competition is coming is like the biggest mantra that sticks that they can play out because it's never it never ends. It's coming. Right. And so uh, that's been going on for 10 years. And I said to myself early on, like my parents, people would ask me, like, you know, they're all worried, like, hey, you're so much you know in Tesla. Don't you think you're trimmed? I'm, I'm like, no, like I've studied it so much. And they're like, well, what would you do? What would change your mind? And that's another important question, I think, with confirmation bias. If you believe in something, you have to believe there's something that would change your mind about that thing you believe in, right? And so you have to tell yourself, what is the thing that would make me change my mind and be upfront with yourself about it? And for me, with Tesla, for example, it was like, okay, if I personally test drove another car, another EV that I thought was at least comparable to a Tesla in terms of its value proposition, which means like the price and the offering it gives and the technology was at least as good. Um, and I thought that company could produce it uh, cost effectively, you know, not just like create a few um, prototypes of it and lose a lot of money on those prototypes, you know? So if I could sit in another product that was comparable to Tesla and drive it myself and test and feel the experience it, then I would start changing my tune on Tesla and be like, well, maybe I should uh, trim some of my Tesla. You know, that's when I would start thinking that. Yeah. It's hard though. when prices are continuing to go now, recently it's gone down a little bit, but yeah, yeah the, the higher the price goes, you're like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel pretty good yeah. about my confirmation right now. <laughs> yeah. My confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah. You feel pretty <laughs> good about it. And there's people that are way further on the spectrum than me on terms of, you know, confirmation bias with Tesla or bull, you know, I'm sort of a moderate, you know, conservative Tesla bull, I think, compared to the, the total <laughs> realm out there I see in like Twitter and such, you know, some people, you know, I hope they're right. I hope I'm just too conservative, you know, but you never know. Yeah. I mean, you and, seem fairly measured. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. One thing about Tesla, too, that it's, you know, although it's like one stock, I think of it almost as a conglomerate of stocks or conglomerate of businesses. Like at one point, what it was being considered, like it was included eventually in the S&P 500 index. But for a long time, it was being snuffed by them. Like, And then you started thinking like, is the S&P going to draw the line? Like never going to include it? Is it so big that they can't even include it now? Because it became so big where it was like a real problem. When they tried to include it, they had to like get opinions from financial professionals to cover their butts to make sure it wasn't going to create too much head waves in the inclusion event. You know, they did get opinions to say, should we include it a quarter at a time for the next few quarters or half? You know, they'd have like these calls to cover their asses, basically. And so before that, like you knew it was going to be a problem for them to include because it's already so big. I started, people started wondering, and I wondered, like, is Tesla just not going to be part of the S&P 500, like forever, maybe? And in that case, could that be like the beginning of the downfall for the S&P 500? If I, what I believe is true, or Tesla does become the biggest company in the world and is a conglomerate of businesses, is Tesla itself almost an index of stocks, an index of businesses, you know, fast growing businesses within it, you know? Is, is it like a Berkshire Hathaway conglomerate of businesses within it, you know, that Elon has kind of orchestrated and put together in one umbrella. And, you know, that's one way I think about Tesla is like, it is 
a conglomerate of businesses within one big umbrella called Tesla right now. And he's mm-hmm. talked about this X holding company, which would be even broader and even more if he put SpaceX in there, Neuralink and Boring Company, and maybe Twitter would go under there. I don't know, but he's wow. talked about creating like an X holding company even. And so that's possible on the horizon. But yet, yeah, I mean, Tesla is sort of already sort of a, a, a diversification play in some respect. It's not a pure play just on EVs. There's like a lot of other things within it. Is that still something that he's thinking about creating an X holding company for, well, I guess, the Boring Company as well? Uh, yeah. Tesla, all these SpaceX, things. Neuralink. SpaceX. Yeah. What are the advantages of that versus running those separate? I think there's pros and cons. I think overall, um, you have, you know, he doesn't have to be wear the same hat at so many different companies all at once then, you know, like he can, I don't know, like there's definitely advantages to having it all under one umbrella, like one company reporting mechanism consolidated together, you know, capital structure sharing. So if SpaceX is running low on capital, that part of the business, it could be using some of the capital from the Tesla's generating easily to, you know, ramp up the uh, SpaceX um, ships that they're building to get ready to go to Mars or whatever. So, you know, they, they kind of can balance each other out. Like Tesla for a while is going to be a cash cow now. It's going to generate tons of cash. But some of these other companies need more capital to, to realize the vision Elon has for them. And so mm. um, combining them would be, you know, would take that stress away to a large degree. But it would also add a lot of stress because now you have – um, the scrutiny of being a publicly traded company for all these businesses, you know, right now, SpaceX, Neuralink, Boring Company are like private and then go under the radar on a lot of things and do a lot more, be a lot more flexible versus being a public company and, and having to report quarterly earnings. And, you know, it's a, it's a different, it's, but overall, I think it would be a better, it would be a, it would be a win if he could do it. But I think structurally trying to put it together and getting shareholders all on board, it would just be, it's too much of a mess. I think, yeah, probably can't do it at this point is my opinion, but I know he's mentioned it on Twitter a few times that, you know, it'd be nice. It seems like he's given like emojis or whatever, saying like he wishes he could do that, you know? Mm. Have you heard of uh, IAC, the company that Barry Diller founded? They own like Match Group, which owns, you know, Tinder, Match, uh, yeah. Range, all these different I've, companies, Vivino as well. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that company. Yeah, they, 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 they have a big theme of companies of like the social. Uh, I think they own like eHarmony too and stuff, right? They own like a bunch of these like dating apps, social, you know, futuristic. You know, it's it's a pretty good plan, I think, to put them all together into one, one kind of company. Yeah, well, they're they're actually in. So it's it's a holding company of holding companies because IAC holds Match Group, which holds all of these different brands, and they own all of these different other holding companies like Angie Home Services, Vimeo, and and uh, Ask.com, like AskG's, all these different companies. Okay. And what they're actually and they also owned Expedia as well. Oh and wow! They're actually famous for holding like building up these companies in terms of a specific theme, let's say dating, building them up, and then spinning it into a separate entity. So Match Group is now its own its company own now, separate own entity. And yeah, exactly. And his whole philosophy is that you're valued way more as the separate entity than what you could get amongst the conglomerate. Mm. And that it actually became a little bit messier because, uh, which might be different than like what X holding company would do, but his whole Barry Diller's whole idea is that like he wanted CEOs to like complete, he wanted to like have decentralization basically, which is like more of the Berkshire Hathaway model, I guess. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's it'd be I'd be curious to know how he would frame that if he actually went about doing the X holding company. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. I mean, there's different ways to go about it. Like, I guess that's not so much organic. Like he's putting these companies together, then spinning them out, or is he developing them himself and then spinning them out? I mean, what like Google develops their own kind of companies in house for the most part and yeah. hasn't really spun them out, or, but you know they could. Um, I think uh, you know other companies develop their own conglomerate of businesses in-house, but it sounds like he's kind of buying businesses early on or getting them early on to develop them and then spinning them out or something. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably more unique than what most people do, but um, yeah, I thought that was an interesting thought that he said about, you know, separating it out actually gives more value and more credibility amongst like a separate entity. Um, yeah, it definitely, there's advantages to that because it's like, then you can invest as like a pure play on that particular niche that you want to invest in, you know, like mm-hmm. if you want to invest in like Oculus, you can't, you have to buy Meta or Facebook or whatever, which is a bunch of stuff, Instagram, Facebook, you know, you can't invest just on yeah, the Oculus, you know, like, cause they, it's part of a, a bigger company, but if they spun it out, maybe it would be a higher valuation than the valuation is given currently within the Facebook conglomerate, for example. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, no. um, yeah. Going back to the portfolio side of things, um, I'd be curious to know get, to get your like your your relationship with risk in in general. Mm-hmm. And you think about like having such a large portfolio in in one size. Uh, another perspective that I've heard that was interesting is what uh, you know Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks around the barbell strategy, where you have like 90% of your holdings in super secure assets like cash or bonds. And then he's got like 10%, which is more like the VC model, it's mm-hmm. like 10% in like super risky assets. Um, have you explored that kind of diversification, like almost like a flip to, uh, to, to guess a little bit of what, what you're doing and what are your thoughts around that and, and risk in general? Yeah, I'm very risk averse. I'm not. Uh, I like risk. I mean, I'm sorry. I like risk. I have mm-hmm. I have appetite for it. Uh, calculated risks in my mind, but I like games. I like, and the stock market is like one of the greatest games ever, in my opinion. Odds are in your favor. You know, like if you just go long and hold, for example, it's not like a casino where the odds are out of your favor no matter what. So I love the stock market, and um, I guess my appetite towards risk is very high, but the the way I viewed it um, is that I have a certain number in my mind. I want to have in the, in the bank and, and income coming in to like survive the lifestyle I have comfortably and still be on a path to retire by the time I'm 60 or whatever. So in my previous job, I was meeting that criteria. I was doing well professionally in my career and then I had, I, I, I didn't raise my cost of living. Like I, I kept my cost of living as my career advanced, instead of increasing my cost of living with a bigger house or, you know, um, nicer vacations and such, I kind of like had created an excess personal savings account that kind of started growing and was able to invest more aggressively with that, you know, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So that was the risk I created for myself to kind of be able to do these things. And, and within that, risky account, I look for like disproportionate rewards, like things that I think, um, you know, with options, it's easily, it's easy to do this. But basically, if I see an opportunity, I think is like only a 25% chance of success. But if I'm successful, it's a 10 times return. 
I want to take that opportunity, you know? And so I look for lots of bets like that. I wouldn't put all the capital in that one bet. I look for lots of those things and I get better at over time with like certain stocks or call option timings with Tesla or whatever other Bitcoin or other things. Um, and so you just get a few successes along those, you know, 10 or 20 bets you make or whatever. And if you get, get them right, then your whole account overall go, does very well. And you continue that strategy and just grows, you know, much faster than it is if you just, you know, bought a couple stocks that might 2X in five years or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And how do you balance the upside reward to limiting the downside? Like how do you make it an asymmetric risk to reward ratio? What are some of the factors that you look for? Yeah, that's the trickiest part. People ask that a lot, like, where do you get your percentages from? So, for example, um, uh, there's this thing on interactive brokers for publicly traded stocks, for example, there's this thing on interactive brokers called the uh, options probability lab. And if you pull up any stock, then um, you can pick a time frame and like for the options time frame, like for January 2023 or January 2024, or maybe it's a shorter time frame, like November of 2022. You think in the next three months, Tesla's going to get to a thousand bucks. What's the probability the options market currently has priced at that? But before I do that, I personally will say like, well, I think it's going to get to a thousand bucks, like 50% chance by November. You know, I might say that. And then I look at the options probability lab and I say, oh, well, uh, basically, I actually just have it pulled up right now. I'll tell you right now as if we're talking. Um, so for November, it prices a thousand bucks, only a 25% chance that it's going to get to a thousand by November. Like that's the chances. Huh. So if you think it's a 50% chance, but it's the mar options market is only pricing a 25% chance based on, you know, mathematically, like if you, they have a whole equation they spell out on their website of how these percentages are, are, are implied or inferred or whatever from the options pricing. And it makes perfect sense if you go through it. So maybe I put some chips on that bet in that aggressive account, for example, I'm not saying this is what I'm doing. I'm just like, hypothetically speaking, like, you know, during the S and P inclusion event for Tesla, for example, that's a famous one I did with like Dave Lee on his investing channel live. And we did it, you know, and I put a huge bet. I thought it was like a 30 or 40% chance Tesla would get to like seven or 800, you know, by the January. And it was in November it was only $400, you know, and, and the options market price had only placed it at like 10% chance or something. So I put a huge bet on that because I was like, mm -hmm. I think this S and P inclusion is a big deal. And it's like, a, you know, it's not probable, but I think it's a, a better chance than 10%. So it turned out to be in my favor and it worked out to be a really good kind of cool real-time scenario and my biggest win ever probably in, in such an options play, if that makes sense. So the, that's where I have to find, like I have my gut feel from studying the company or studying the industry or what I think, in, and I have to use my gut feel and compare it against what the odds makers or not the odds makers, but the market the options market is pricing for that percentage chance. And maybe I'm wrong a lot of times. And that's why I just do a small percentages because if I'm wrong a lot, then maybe this isn't the type of investing I should be doing. But if I'm right, you know, if I do it enough and I can calibrate myself and I have, you know, there's a large enough district, you know, um, large enough, uh, you know, example of, of data for me to follow to see my average, then maybe I should keep doing it. Right. So that's what I, I, I if that makes sense, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the worst, like, what's the loss there? You just, you pay a premium for that and then you lose a whatever dollar amount. With yeah. For that. example, of buying a call option, like in that S&P inclusion, if I bought those 700 call options and Tesla's at 450 or whatever, and it only went up to like 600, but never went beyond 700, I lose the entire amount of money I spent 
on buying those call options. So I have to yeah. be prepared to lose it all. But that's why I just take a small port. Maybe I take 5% of my personal account that I'm playing with like that and do it on that bet. You know, in that case, I did a much higher percentage, but I think it was like 10% of my net worth or something. But, you know, but, but in that particular example, but that was like, I felt like a big discrepancy. A lot of times mm-hmm. I'm doing these bets is I don't feel like it's as big of a discrepancy in my judgment versus what the markets are saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to be really on top of that. Um, yeah. When it's like, it's such an, it's just such a fascinating thing. Like the, the idea of having a limited downside, but with unlimited upside, have you th- applied that logic into other parts of your life? And yeah. thought about what are some of the things yeah. that I like really have no downside. Um, yeah. like for example, I can think about like books, like a, yeah. a, like a really good book that can cost yeah. you like $15 or $20. Like yeah. what's the downside that you lose that. But if you yeah. can find the right information that can literally change your life. Yeah. Um, like that's one example. Like, do you have any other things yeah. that you've, you've applied? Yeah, absolutely. So like I'm big on health and I like listening to health podcasts or the people guests you have on, especially to talk about it. I like listening to different views and um, you know, I became a big fan of like low carb keto, you know, four or five years ago and it's had life-changing results on me health wise, you know, in all facets of my life in a lot of ways. And uh, but at the same time, there's this thing called cholesterol that has been like <laughs> out there and my cholesterol numbers went through the roof, right? And, uh, I read about it. I read, yeah, with keto. Yeah. Huh. So even though I lost weight and I, you know, I'm stronger and healthier, feel healthier. My cholesterol numbers went really high and it's been a controversial thing with my family too. Like you're and the doctors who are just like doing what they're supposed to do because otherwise they get sued. If I have a heart attack and they didn't prescribe me something, they're all like, you got to get on this statin pronto, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. You know, let's get a, uh, image of my heart or whatever. Anyway, long story short, I've come around to the idea, like as much as I've studied the the cholesterol, and I think it's probably um, there's a lot of dogma within the cholesterol, you know, system set up with statins and all that. I think, you know, how, it, you know, especially when it comes to like low carb or keto, some people get really high cholesterol, but they lost a lot of weight and they're feeling better. So as, as much as I think that I probably don't need to lower my cholesterol, I think there's a chance I'm wrong. Right. And I can't be a binary thinker, right? I always say like to myself, don't be a binary thinker. I mean, like about anything is important, especially. And so for health, like what if I'm wrong? And what if the cholesterol really is high and could make me have a heart attack by the time I'm 55 or something or 50, you know, because I'm not paying attention to this. And I'm just letting my cholesterol go through the roof, even though I feel all healthy and I have good body fat or all that, you know? So on the 20% chance that I'm completely wrong and I really do need to do it. I've decided to find a really good doctor who can, who was, you know, I, I feel confident understands like the keto way of eating, but also understands cholesterol to a great degree. And, and I've gone that direction of, you know, I'm going to take something that lowers my cholesterol, but I'm going to keep my way of eating and, and, uh, and, and just play the risks that way with my, cause it's my health, you know? So yeah certain things that are important. I don't want to be a binary thinker. And, and I got to know, like, you know, as much as I believe in something, this touches on everything, confirmation bias, probabilities, you know, risk, right. Everything we've talked about this in health sort of touches on that, this example. So that's just an example of touching upon all those things. Like as much as I think I'm right and I don't need to be on this, I took it anyway, because I'm like, what if I'm wrong? Then I'm really going to let myself die, you know, 20 years too early because I, mm. I was, 
had too much confirmation bias against it, you know? So that's just an example, but there's lots of things like books, like why not read the, uh, I'm a slow reader though. So like that amount of time for me could be spent listening to podcasts of the authors of those books, for example, that's what I would choose my, that's usually what I choose my time on for like, listen to the new authors points of views. Yeah. Pod- podcasts and audiobooks are, are probably even a, a greater upside because you're, you can do something else while, so you're, you're literally like, doing yeah. something else you're not wasting yeah. any time you're just walking yeah. anyway so you're you're listening to that information. exactly i'm in the so car like, walking going for a run yeah exactly podcasts are free also yeah like another one that i found in my early 20s in new york city when i was like completely broke i started fasting intermittent fasting oh nice i didn't even really realize like there was so, <laughs> such health benefits around it. but i'm like okay yeah. if i can cut like one meal out of my day and i could i could be spending like 66 percent of what i spend now yeah. And it's good for you. Like there's literally no downside. And you get more productive time, you know, mm. to, to the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think the Pareto principle, you're familiar with the Pareto principle. Oh yeah. That's so important. The 80, 20 rule. Like you get, you know, like I can get so much the like, more benefit instead of under, like if I read the whole book or listen to even listen to a whole audio book, occasionally I do listen to whole audio books, but it could be like 20 hours long. You know, if I listen to, you know, three interviews by that author, three one or one hour interviews by that author or four one hour, that's 20% of the time of, of, uh, of, of the 20 hour book. But I've listened to four one hour interviews by that same author who, talking about their book by, you know, good interviewers, then I'm probably getting 80% of the value of reading the whole book in that four hours of time versus 20 hours of listening, you know, 20% I'll miss out on always. Right. And if it's something yeah. super important, like Tesla, I wouldn't want to do that to me. That's important. Right. But for like, generalizing across all other things. Like I feel like it's very valuable to me to just apply the Pareto principle and try to, and podcasts have been a tremendous life hack for me in that way, because I'm getting so much knowledge, so much perspectives, just listening to like, you know, five different authors every week on different interviews versus I'm such a slow reader. It would take me like three weeks to read one book, you know? Yeah. And in some ways that's how you've also like constructed your portfolio is like, you're probably going to get the biggest bang for your buck for, having 80% of your portfolio in Tesla and that's just how you yeah. structured it. Right. It's just, yeah. Yeah. So the way you invest. Yeah. There's well. like that one investment that you find that gives 80% of your net worth returns. And I feel like I found it with Tesla and instead I put 80% of my portfolio in, or I let my 80% of my portfolio become that. Yeah. And I stick mm, with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you've, you feel like you've done or experiences that you've also had uh, that's, that's helped you become a, a better investor? Um, definitely, uh, my prior, um, work experiences, uh, working at a sales rep for interactive brokers for all those years, I think 10 years I was doing sales. So some super bright people, like much smarter than me, I'd be servicing like someone, a partner at an investment, global investment bank that everyone is like, thinks is the best might be leaving with many millions of dollars of a cold and parachute and saying, I want to start my own $10 million hedge fund or whatever, and call up interactive brokers. And it's like, I'm going to start my own hedge fund. What are you guys terms and costs and such? I'm shopping around for a prime broker. And I talk to them and explain why we're the most cost effective. And then, you know, they'd pick interactive brokers to run their strategy, but they'd also explain their strategy to me, right. As they're talking me through it to make sure our platform can, I'd be able to translate how our platform can, can do the strategy for them. It's a lot of times it's like long, short investing, like going long certain stocks and shorts, other stocks, for example, that's the most common, but people do other kinds of things like options, arbitrage or uh, corporate action, you know, specialty stuff or whatever, you know, there's all kinds of 
volatility trading, you know, I learned so many, a huge gambit of different, like talk about the 80, 20 rule. Like I'm getting like, you know, just by learning a little, talking to each of these people, I'm learning so many different facets of investing, right. From all these different types of investment strategies, all dealing with exchange traded stuff. Cause that's all interactive brokers dealt with is like options and stocks. Primarily we didn't do fixed income stuff very well um, for most of the time I worked there. And so, but in terms of like, Public list, publicly listed stocks and, and options, I learned a huge array of different investment strategies. And I was able to kind of take nuggets of wisdom from each of them um, that I felt have been very helpful to me in my own personal investing. You know, I didn't like, I, I don't, I can't copy. Like when I was working there, you had to be very careful about what you invest, you can only invest after hours. So I didn't, I just, but a couple nuggets of wisdom I learned that were most important. I, I explained to some people are, um, no matter how smart these people were, like rocket scientists, you know, math PhDs, you know, I think I talked to like a former Nobel Prize winner once, or I don't know, but there's like nuclear physicists, you know, these people are brilliant people, 10 times smarter than me. And they're so sure that their investment strategy is going to do so well. Almost none of them beat the market, you know, over any three to five year period. Almost all of them fail and really? go out of business yeah. if they don't raise enough money from investors in time to cover their costs for what they're running their business or whatever. Um, some of them do okay, but they don't beat the market. Like S&P is returning 10 or 15% a year. They're maybe have one month, one year, 20% the next year, they're down 5% or whatever, you know, so they're just not beating the market, you know? So it's like, that's one lesson I learned. So I was like, mm, what do I do with that? But the few people that did seem to do very well were like the most boring because they didn't generate commissions. They didn't trade often, you know, <laughs> they didn't borrow even. They would just like buy and hold a basket of, of a, cute, a few stocks, but when included in that would be like Apple and Facebook, mm. but then they'd have a few other stocks, but their basket of stocks would then be up 50% a year for a few years in a row. And I'd be like, wow, that account's doing well, but they don't generate any revenue for us. But I've noticed that the account's doing well. What are they? I'm going to talk to them and find out. And they said they just hold in a couple of stocks they really like or whatever. And so I learned like, okay, maybe if you find a stock. And then there was another account client we had early on in my sales career. And his account started with like two or three million and it shot up to like 20 million in like six or nine months. And he was generating a ton of revenue, a ton of commissions to interactive brokers. So I called to find out like, Hey, how can we help service you to keep you happy? Cause you're generating so much revenue to us and you're doing so well. And he's explaining his strategy and he's like buying like call options on like Apple or suppliers of Apple back in Apple's heyday when it was like doing really well as a stock, like doubling every year for a couple of years in a row there. And uh, so that seed, that was a seed in my mind combined with like, finding a few generational companies. So if I, I was like, if I could find a, a generational company, like the Am I missed Amazon, I missed Apple. If I could find like the next one and apply the call buying opportunity, like a simple, just buying calls at the right times, then maybe I can really have a transformative return on my account. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of how I found Tesla and applied that to that. Yeah. So if I was to summarize that, like you, you've seen all of these different sh shorting company or people that were shorting and all of these different financial arbitrages, but at the end of the day, the ones that have done the best are the ones that found a couple of really good stocks. So they weren't fully, completely diverse. They weren't like investing to 50 or 100. Yeah. There's a couple of really good stocks, like the Teslas or the Apples. And they have some bad stocks mixed in with it often, but as long as they had a couple of the really good stocks within it. Yeah. Right. The, one, the, the big winners, they held on to it. And sometimes they would use options. 
Yeah. Well, like a couple of times I saw people use options that did really well with it, it but that was very sporadic, you know, and that's okay. very high risk, but I was able to combine that and use the options with it. But I think if you just hold like the Amazon or the Apple or the Tesla stock and you just, you know, hold the, a couple of breadwinner stocks, you know, those stocks go up 10 X or 50 X over five or 10 years, a lot of times. And that's huge. That's a huge gain, you know? So I, people are always like, what's the next Tesla? I have no idea what the next Tesla is. I'm always on the search, but I don't know what the yeah. next Tesla is, to be honest. Yeah. It's hard to find a company like Tesla, honestly. Yeah. And because it's not going to go up 10 X again in the next few, like Tesla, it's already almost a trillion market cap, you know, maybe it gets yeah. to 10 trillion market cap by the end of the decade. I'm, that's my speculation, but it's not going to go up 50 X by the end of the mm -hmm. decade, you know? Yeah. 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 And I think people struggle with this idea of, holding things for the long term like oftentimes like you mentioned sometimes it's the best thing just to sit on your butt and and not think about anything else yeah. why do you think people are so poor at taking such a long-term perspective is that just innate in human nature you think yeah i think um emotions get the best of us and yeah things when the market's going up, it feels good, but when it's going down, it feels like the magnitude is twice as much, even in, in, in a negative way, you know? And so I think that discrepancy of emotion plays a role. Um, we get very fearful. Then we also get FOMO, you know, a lot. That's a big thing. Like in this last few years when the market really rallied and all this crypto stuff, and there's a lot of FOMO out there. Um, so there's just a lot of human behavioral psychology. And that's another interesting facet of investing is behavioral finance. And you can learn all kinds of interesting biases by studying this behavioral finance version of, uh, of, of the industry. And there's funds and, and, and strategies based on trying to take advantage of that, you know, trying to gauge the sentiment of the overall market, you know, uh, investors and such. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, of that. What's interesting is there's been like studies. Uh, I think Fidelity did some study they published once that across all their accounts, the best performing accounts were those of the people were, that were deceased, that were dead. So, so <laughs> their accounts just sat there and didn't do anything for years and no one claimed them. And those accounts performed better than all the other accounts combined. You know, that just oh, tells wow. you something, right? You just, you, the best thing is just buy and hold, you know, and hold those stocks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is that just compound interest? Like the, you know, as Albert Einstein says, like the eighth, under, eighth wonder of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Compound it. interest. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You just buy and hold the, the Apples or the Amazons. That's included in your basket of stocks. You're going to do great. Like, I think even the S&P 500, like most of its returns, if you take out like the top five performers of it or like Apple, Amazon, I can't remember. There's a couple others. But if you take out like those top three or five, the S&P 500 would have even been like flat over the last like 20 years or something like that. It wouldn't have done much. Really? Yeah. So wow. you want to have... You know, that's why if you if you diversify with an index ETF, you're probably going to get some of those really good performers within it somewhere. So you need to find you need to have that within your basket somehow. Yeah, I did a calculation, uh, I think like a year ago around the, like the compound interest calculator of like how much I had and how much I can put in per month. And like, I understand it mathematically, but it like it was still boggling my mind to see this yeah. visual chart of how compound interest actually works after 10, even like 15 years. Like, yeah. it's crazy to me. Um, it's, 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 it really is like one of the wonders of the world. There, there's a story that I heard where Manhattan uh, back in the 1600s, I believe, was like when, when the Dutch kind of really was one of the wealthiest nations of the world, they bought it for the equivalent of like $26. Hmm. 
And if you were to like compound that and um, like, let's say like seven, seven, eight percent yearly yeah. um, up to today, that, that dollar amount of $26, it would be worth $22 trillion. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like, it is crazy. Yeah. Like, well, like the fact that it was bought for $26 already is, is insane. <laughs> yeah. But just goes to show you, like if you can find the right winners and you compound that, it's insane what it can return. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, the compound interest thing that blows my mind when I study it. It used to be my biggest selling point when I worked at interactive brokers to, cause we were the most cost effective. So like the most active traders would, we'd want to come. So I'd talk to like someone who's really actively trading or uses a lot of margin and it'd be like, listen, the difference in your commission rates with us and them and the difference in your financing, like that, that difference is big and it compounds every trade you do. So that difference could be, you know, I'd be like, it'd be the compounding the law of compound interest. Do you ever study that? And that'd be like a big selling point of people be like, yeah, that's right. I do trade often. And, you know, all this little, even though it's just a little bit of a difference for each trade, you compound that over time. It's a huge difference in my return. They would, they would get that. Hmm. Yeah. But I guess yeah. if you were making money off of commission, that, that wasn't the best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of incentivized not to tell them that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the commission with Interactive Road was like very standard. Like I couldn't change it. It was like what it was. And I just had to explain and communicate what it was to them. So I, it's yeah. like, not like I could charge them more commission if I wanted to even, you know, like they're going to get the rate they get if they pick that structure with us, you know. So I just had to explain it to them why it was the best. And as long as they used us and I got a lot of clients, my, you know, I wasn't paid necessarily on commission. It was more like I got a nice salary. And at the end of the year, if my clients generated a good amount of revenue, then I'd get a, a better bonus. But it wasn't like investment banking jobs where your your bonus is like three times your salary. And it was nothing like that. Yeah. 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 And they generally hold it to like 65 or whatever the retirement number is. Is that the idea? Yeah. So the, the job I could, stay, you know, Interactive Brokers is a very stable, financially stable company. So I knew I could stay there for many years. It wasn't like they were going to go out of business or get bought up or consolidated like, you know, a lot of the online brokers would be. So, mm. um, you know, those com they all use Interactive Brokers, which is the electronic trading platform. And I just kind of would sign them up and get them started on our platform and make sure they're comfortable and hopefully help help them grow their business. Um, and they were customers for life usually once they signed up because they realized the benefits once they used it. Yeah, I, I know we were just talking about like um, retirement and everything. Do you ever wonder like why 65 is the <laughs> retirement number? Like where, where I always wonder that, that yeah. Number? I don't know what it is. I always had in my head like 60. I was like, I'm going to beat 65. I'm gonna, just 60. If I get to 60 and maybe I was like, maybe best case 55 if I'm lucky, you know? But uh, I don't know why people even retirement is like, like now that I got to a point where I have financial freedom and I left that job and I, you know, it's like, it's a real identity crisis, you know, like, you know, you have this identity wrapped up in a career for so long and maybe you're like raising a family at the same time, which I've been doing. And then like all of a sudden all that disappears. Like, I feel like that's a major thing. Like your mm. kids become, you go out on their own, hopefully. And, and at the same time, like you're you lose your job that you were doing nine to five every day. Like, what are you going to do with your time? You have, you know, it sounds good. Like, Oh, I'll play golf every day. I'll play tennis. But I feel like it can become a very depressing place very quickly, you know? And uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's a weird thing. Like we all have that as a goal as we're working, but in reality, you got to focus. I think the journey is what we have to focus on more than the destination, you know, like make sure we have a job or whatever we're doing. We really enjoy doing because that's, what's most important. Yeah. I mean, it is a weird concept, like 65. Like, I don't know when that was decided, but my mom is 65. She's perfectly healthy. She can basically do anything she wants. Like she's probably 
what a typical like 45 year old person was back in the day. And yeah, uh, like, I think we're living longer as well now. And yeah, uh, but like the whole system is set around that, right? Like you can't take out your retirement fund or your IRA or 401k until you're 65. Is that, is that the number in America? It might be 59 and a half or something like that. I think it's something like that. Okay. Yeah. But it, 65 okay. is like the number everyone's familiar. Like when you're technically a senior citizen, you get like the beneficial pricing at movies or whatever, you know, when you're 65 and over, you're technically a senior citizen then. So yeah, 65 is a weird number. I think the age, what was it? Age uh, estimate was like 72 or 74 back when they came out with that number or something. Now it's like a little higher maybe in the U S but you know, if you're healthy and you really focus on your health, you could live into your nineties, you know, um, these days more commonly, I would say. Um, so yeah, you have Maybe like 30 I... years to like play bridge or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I got 65 because in Korea, after you hit 65, I think legally you're not allowed to work in certain professions. Oh, like wow. At professors. I think my, my aunt, who's a you have uh, to retire by professor, then? you have to retire by then you get like a severance and everything. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you get a pension and everything, but you can't even work in certain countries uh, like Korea after you're 65 for certain professions. So it's, um, it's like a really odd, outdated thing that that's happening. And, um, and it's a pretty high life expectancy over there, Korea, right? That's one of the higher life expectancy countries in the world, right? Yeah. yeah Korea and Japan is, is, is way up there. And um, yeah. what's the that, population like over there? Is it declining like in Japan and Korea too? Is it? Or I, I think so. Yeah. People like the new trend now is not to get married even like it's actually just to be like uh, co-codependent, I guess. Um, let me actually look it up over the year, over yeah. the years. But I think it is, it is either flat or mm. it should be. Um, yeah. It says South Korea's population is projected to fall below. Uh, I don't know how old this is, but yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Just, yeah. just culturally. It's like a similar trend. Married. Yeah. I mean, work ethic is so big. Over, everyone works like crazy over there, it seems like. And the career is everything. And, you know, no time for kids then, you know, for families. It's a weird concept. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me of the whole like fire movement. Have you heard about that? I think like it's spurred up in like the Reddit world, like financially independent, retire early, where like, oh, the wow. whole idea is to not aim for 60 or 65 is your retirement, but you're actually aiming to retire in your early like 30s or 40s. Even. Wow. And, and, and the whole idea is that like you're so aggressive. So um, you're, you're saving instead of 10% or 20%, you're aggressively saving 50 to 75% of your income and wow. you're reducing your expense as much as possible. So a lot of digital nomads now they'll go and live in South America or they'll go live in Asia, work online and try to save almost everything they possibly can. And they even have this like personal fire number. So wow. the, the equation that you use. Okay. Uh, there's an older question, but I think the new one is you take your annual expense. You can just take do 80, 20 of that. So like, what do you pay for rent? What are your mortgage? What do you pay for food, transportation? Um, and then you divide that by 3%, so 0.03. And wow. that's your fire number. Um, and there's also this cool tool on Nomad List that I can link down and it'll just do the calculation for you. And it'll tell you exactly what country you can retire as well. So oh, some countries cool. you can retire like earlier, some countries you, you have to retire a little later and people are obsessed with this 
it's it's uh it's so interesting to to the point where they have like three different types of fires so they have like wow. lean fire uh, yeah. which is like you save almost everything and you're just completely frugal they have fat <laughs> fire people which are like less frugal and then barista fire which are the people that can retire early but they still plan to keep some sort of a part-time income so their calculation is different than let's say a fat fire or lean fire um, but there's this whole movement that's happening in the millennial and, and Gen, Gen X. Wow. Gen Z, Fire movement. I'm going to study. That looks interesting. That's something I probably would have been interested in. You know, I feel like when I was graduating college, something similar to that was like, go work in as an, as an investment banker and work a hundred hours a week for five or 10 years. Then you'll be able to retire, you know, like, but you'll burn yeah. your twenties out, you know, but that was like the closest thing to that. But you know, that was before like the internet became so big where you could share so many ideas. Now you have this and you have so many new industries now and investment banking and finance isn't like what it used to be either, but you have so many new industries, technology industries, and people that work hundred hours a week in their twenties, same kind of thing. It sounds like be very frugal. And when you work so many hours, like when I was 22 or 23, I had three jobs at one point and I was working so many hours, like three different jobs. It wasn't get, it wasn't like high paying jobs, but it was like one was a full-time and two part-time, but I was working so much. I didn't have time to spend it. So when you mm. work like hundred hours a week, you're forced to intermittent fast or whatever. You just don't have time <laughs> to eat or time to spend, you know, and, and then you end up yeah. saving a ton that way. Um, but yeah, your twenties can just fly by quick. You can get burnt out so quickly like that. Some people, I guess, stick with it. And they, I guess you have the power of groups. And if you're in part of like a, 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 a part of a, a trend or part of a movement, an online community, fire community, it helps you kind of stick to it instead of getting burnt out and feeling alone, you know? Yeah. There's, there's communities of people like how they're saving money or, or extra side incomes that they're, yeah. that they're earning, and wow. I think there, if there's a goal like people have around like this idea of retiring at 30 or 40, then there is something that they can look forward to, I guess. So all mm. of the sacrifices they're making is part of this like challenge, you know, the 30 day challenge that people, that people get inspired by if it's a short amount of time. Um, but obviously it's not something that you have to worry too much about these days. But, <laughs> not now. Uh, yeah. But it goes back to like it. the journey or this destination, you know, like. It's a, it's a real, it's real issue. I feel like in, in everyday life, even like going somewhere or doing a trip or something, it's like, I focus, it's like, it's human, I guess, nature at this point to focus just on like getting there, the destination being there, not like the travel to there, or the, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, just the actual journey is so important to be able to be present and fo- and enjoy it. And when you're doing that fire thing, it feels like the journey is going to be very rough. You know, mm. maybe if you can do it with a journey that you really enjoy, then do it. Right. But I feel like if yeah. you're, if you're sacrificing, if you're not going to hate the journey, then you're going to like lose yourself and your identity in that. And then yep. you get to the destination and then you're just miserable probably anyway. You know, it's like mm. money doesn't buy happiness really. You know, it, it helps in some ways, but it also creates more problems too, in some ways too. So it's not all good, you know, yeah. Do, do you feel that's actually was going to be my next question is like how crazy it is that you're, you're still this young and you have, you don't really have to worry so much about the normal things that most people worry about when it comes to money. Obviously, there's other problems that you mentioned, but yeah. so are, you, are you saying you don't feel any happier than you than you were back when you were kind of still struggling in your early 20s? Um, no, I'm definitely happier. Um, I've learned a lot about myself in the last 10 or 20 years. I think a lot of 
to be honest, like the podcast air, you know, what's crazy is AirPods changed the game for everything. Like people don't realize this, but the invention of the AirPod or the, the, the move, you know, getting AirPods out, like before that, like untwisting and unwiring my headphones, I was such a pain. Like I hardly even listen to music, yeah. like in my car, maybe I turn on music, but now you have AirPods, like it's so easy to pop them in and just like continue listening to that podcast or whatever. And I'm a big podcast guy, I like listening to like stuff. So I've learned so much like self-help type things or perspectives mm-hmm. on life and from diet to breathing to like exercise, nutrition, you know, um, sleeping, you know, all these things that I think improve my, I've been able to learn all these like tidbits and apply different things, but now I have time, like the money affords me time, you know, like, so I'm not spending nine hours or eight hours a day working for some other company that I buy because I have to, I can spend the eight hours a day doing something I want to do, which is still investing related, but also I can spend it doing health related things now too both for physical and mental health, you know? So yeah, I, I do. And I do get a lot more, I guess, happiness because I have more time to take care of myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Before I didn't have as much time to take care of myself and I have more time to take care of my kids or spend with my kids and family. And, you know, that makes me happier too. So it's, it's a, a good balance. What's something crazy you just spend money on? Like just something so stupid that like doesn't return any value, but you're like, ah, you know what? Like I didn't have this when I was young. Now I have money and I can just spend it. And like, it's just crazy amounts. Like something that people would be like, what the hell? (laughs) Is there anything that you had just, you just like splurge on that? Like, I don't know, like some people get like a massage every day or, uh, you know, some people get like luxury watches or like a sauna, like 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 an incredibly highly sophisticated sauna if they're like is there something that you do that just because you don't really care about it as much in terms of financials um a lot of things i guess one thing is like um we we actually do a lot of like doordash uh we're like one of their top 0.1 percent customers just as a family (laughs) like kids are so particular and so picky about what they eat like one of them only eats hamburgers from this place. The other one only eats it from this place. And one of them only, you know, I was such a picky eater growing up too. So we ended up doing yeah. DoorDash a lot because like, we don't want to have to cook five different dinners, you know, for our kids and for ourselves, you know? So we do DoorDash so much and we don't, even, we just tip people a lot. Like I, I'm, I'm big on, I like to tip people. So because I worked in the restaurant industry, I worked in the service industry and I, you know, I appreciate, so, you know, I add the extra tip on DoorDash other more than what the, they say suggests as the highest amount or, or when I do different things, whether it's like a haircut or something, I try to tip people more. Um, Cause to me, you know, I feel like it goes along with longer, it, it, you know, I appreciate what they're, what the service they're doing, you know, and I worked in that type of business before and like, why not be a little, I'm very fortunate and be generous to people that are hardworking, you know? Um, so, but for, 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 Personal spending. Um, I mean, I definitely. Uh, I'm trying to think about it. Um, I mean, I do do have like a massage once every few weeks. I have I, one thing I've gotten into this recently is this thing called Stretch Lab. So once a week, I do like a Stretch Lab appointment. It's a little much, you know, I'm trying to, think. I do have a sauna. We put a sauna in my, in my, ba- in our bathroom, in our house. It's like a tiny one. We had to make it 
it was like 10,000 all in with installation and the wood and everything. So it was, it was not cheap, but it was, it's really nice. I use it, you know, a few times a week, Yeah. but really the Tesla cars, the Tesla products are like the most expensive things I buy all the new Tesla. Like I was one of the first ones to get the plaid. I got Starlink, um, SpaceX Starlink. And, you know, I, I pay for all the, the Tesla solar roof and I got six power walls, you know, so I pay yeah. up a lot on the Tesla stuff, but I also count that as sort of investment research. That's in like R and D, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I enjoy <laughs> yeah, I that. that. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not afraid to like go to a nice dinners a lot, you know. And yeah, yeah. You know, my wife and I, we go to we have nice dinners. Or we have nice vacations more. She's got more expensive taste than me, and and on like vacations and stuff. So we've been mm. taking nicer vacations recently when we go on vacation. So I guess that nice. stuff. Nothing. Nothing I can think of other than that. And I don't have like a watch, you know, fetish or anything like jewelry or, or anything I can think of. Um, it says yeah. a lot about you, though. It means like you weren't depending on that to be happy. These are like nice cherry on tops that you could have, but it, they weren't they weren't other things that were like fulfilling you. Like you're you're seems like you're you're a pretty happy person just in general without all that stuff. And having money is just going to be highlighting that more. Like money is really just going to expose more of who you are. And, and I think that's, that says a lot about, I guess, yeah. how you grew up and, and in general. Um, yeah. Some final questions for you, Emmett. So what advice would you give to your early 20s or 25-year-old self? Um, one tip around money, one tip around your career, and one tip about life. Um. So early twenties, um, trying to, yeah, I would say I'm pretty happy where I'm at now. So there's nothing I'd like change. So I'm trying to think about what advice I could give myself to like reaffirm maybe that I would stay in the path that I'm on. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. uh, uh, maybe, um, I guess one tip around life is like, don't freak out about, um, relationships so much or finding the right woman, you know, you'll, you'll find, you'll find the right one eventually, you know, and that you're, you'll be happy with, uh, around, you know, careers is like, I would say, find the job that you enjoy the journey in the most, you know, I really actually enjoyed working for interactive brokers. It was hard to leave. Like I, for, I, I, I stayed there much longer than I should have net worth wise, you know, I should have left like mm. six or months or a year before I left or whatever, but I wanted, I, I liked working there and uh, I felt, you know, so I enjoyed that journey that last 10 years of my career working there for sure. Um, so yeah, you know, try to find, don't be afraid to change jobs to find a job that you enjoy the journey with, you know, and, and money wise also at the same time with jobs, find a job where you're not limiting your ceiling, your financial ceiling too much. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I was a personal trainer for like a year after college because I couldn't get another, I couldn't find a salary job and I enjoyed it. You know, I thought it was good. I probably burnt me out a little bit, but I enjoyed it. But I realized the financial ceiling on that is not very high, you know, unless you open your own gym and work like crazy hours, like a hundred hours a week to open your own gym and hire trainers and do all that stuff. And I wasn't sure if that was, and even then it's tricky hard, you know? So um, I realized I had to do something I really different and the finance always was very attractive to me. So I got myself into the financial industry. What are examples of that, of those careers or those, or the, or the factors that make up um, the ability to not have a ceiling? Um, I would say like, <clears throat> 
in, in finance, I saw that if you were like the top 1% performers, you know, you got paid really well, you know, like some job where you're, if you're like a top 1% performer, if you can perform and be like top five or 10% or top 1%, you know, you get paid super well. Cause I, you know, I had confidence in myself that I could push myself to be a top 10% performer, maybe top 1% if I really pushed myself, you know, it was a good fit for me, you know? And so I realized like, you know, finance, a lot of financial jobs, especially the ones that are around making uh, the, the certain jobs in finance are sort of dead ends. You, you figure out quickly, like there's a lot of back office operational jobs that like you're reporting to some manager by giving them spreadsheets of exceptions of trades or whatever, you know, like, and yeah, you can do well, but it's very hard to rise up the ranks. It's, it can be a slow grueling. It's not a very enjoyable journey a lot of times. Um, but then there's certain roles where like in sales, for example, I got found myself into sales. And if you're doing sales of something that you really believe in and you think is actually good for the people you're selling it to um, and, and you feel like you can be a top performer, then you're going to get paid well, you know, in any sales role pretty much. Right. Um, yeah. So sales can sound shady or I guess that term is very generalized like i think of like knife people going around knocking on doors trying to sell you know knives to people <laughs> you know like when i was a kid i'd have people knocking on our doors trying to sell us like the new kitchen knife or something I'm like oh that's a tough sales job you know <laughs> but uh like i guess they really believe in the knives i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> or the commission is really high <laughs> yeah, commission's really high yeah yeah i'll sell you this knife for 100 bucks and i get 80 bucks but you don't know that you know so exactly yeah but yeah I mean, if you find something you really love and you can do sales at it and help move the world in the direction of what you, what you think believe in or whatever in that sales role, then that's a great thing. I don't know. That's an example, I guess. Does that answer the question a little? Yeah, I think so. I think all those things like it, 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 it the fundamental thing is like, you're not, you're not trading your time for money and yeah. it's more about the results that you deliver and um, yeah. it's something that you can work an hour and get just as much results as someone that works 12 and you're not capped by that mm -hmm. necessarily. So, yeah. And what, what's really tricky about now the financial thing I do now, which is having a, a small hedge fund. Um, and what we, you know, like the job now is like investing and picking the right investments. And um, when you work hard in sales, like you put in the time, you get the results. You know, there is a certain element of time. Like you work smart, obviously too, but the more time you do working smart, the more results. But with the investing thing here, like when the market's down big, like it has been or whatever, like putting in more time, like trying to read the tea leaves of the markets or study a stock isn't going to change much, you know, like right. really like, it's a very different animal and very tricky. Like I wouldn't want to do this if I didn't have a buffer where I know I could be failing in what I'm doing and still survive, you know? So the hedge fund is like 20% of my net worth and make sure all our investors, they know that no more than 10% of their net worth is put in our fund or whatever. So that, that's like a, a rule we have because it's very high risk, the fund we do, but like, it's a different type of work. I, I don't know if it's work. It's like, I'm trying to, you know, play the game of the stock market and, and get good returns. And then, um, yeah, so it's a different career I'm on now, if that makes sense, then it's probably very unusual, but it's, it's very strange in a lot of ways, but I actually like it. Yeah. 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 I think, I think Naval, um, Ravikant, he kind of detailed it around, like the more skin in the game you have, or the more accountability that you have towards whatever results that you give, 
will give you more leverage, but you also have more downsides. Like I right now run a startup and for most startups, they fail because it doesn't really matter how hard you work. If you don't have the right product that fits the market and what they need, or if the downtown, if the downturn in the market and you can't raise money, really doesn't matter how hard you work. It's a little bit, yeah. it, it is outside of your control, but if yeah. you can deliver, um, you're, you're going to get more upside as well. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's a different rewiring for, for, for most people. And, and I guess yeah. that's why it's not a good fit for everyone. Right. Have you adjusted yeah. that well in terms of your mind? And yeah, it's always a constant struggle, but it is like startup. Like you said, yeah. Um, you know, my, my sister, she's gone to a lot of different startups and, and, um, worked at a lot of different startups, but yeah, it's, it's most startups fail. Like you said, they don't make it. And, uh, I think if you can accept that going into it, um, that's, that's the game. You know, you got to accept that going into it and know that like, it's probably not going to work out, but if it does, then it's like incredible, incredibly fulfilling, you know? So, um, there's always another day, another startup or another job to be able to do after as well. And, and, you know, I think, you know, doing that when you're younger is actually a good thing, um, you know, to be able to do. Yeah. Awesome, Emmett. Well, this has uh, always been fun. Uh, love having you on here, just talking about everything from investing yeah. to life. Um, do, you, do you have anything else to promote? Anything that you want to share? Obviously, you've got your hedge fund, which may oh, not be a good yeah, for everyone. Yeah. But no, yeah, yeah, don't worry. No, I'm not promoting it. Yeah, but uh, basically, we have our own in, um, YouTube channel that we've had some really interesting interviews on. Uh, mm. uh, we had my former boss, for example, Thomas Petterfee. He's like, incredible legend in electronic trading, like the first person to create electronic trading machine. It's incredible stories, but uh, Good Soil Investment Management, that's the YouTube channel. There's some cool interviews. We're going to do a a really interesting interview about e-gaming coming up with a guy who's a kind of a venture capital person on like e-gaming stuff. And and, uh, we'll talk a lot about like Roblox and just like where the world is going in terms of online gaming. So sick. I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. I'll link that up. Awesome, Emmett. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Awesome. All right. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.